Something a little different in the feed today, an episode of a podcast called Real Good by U.S. Bank. This podcast was paid for and produced by U.S. Bank. The editorial staff of CNBC had no role in its creation. Every season, Real Good seeks to tell stories of people putting in the work. It's a podcast that shows us that while the world is an imperfect place, there are people out there trying to make it better. They put out four great seasons and they just started their fifth. You're about to hear a clip from the third episode of the fifth season. Claudia Romo Edelman, the founder of We Are All Human, shares stories about the importance of including Latino voices in business and platforming underserved communities. If you like what you heard, go listen and subscribe to Real Good wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was paid for and produced by US Bank. The editorial staff of CNBC had no role in its creation. This is Real Good by US Bank, a podcast about helpers. I'm Faith Saley. Welcome back to another season of Real Good. Claudia Romo Edelman started traveling at a young age to observe and absorb the world around her. She speaks seven languages fluently. Her resume includes titles like head of marketing for Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria, chief of advocacy at UNICEF, and head of marketing for the United Nations Refugee Agency. Claudia has spent her career shining a spotlight on issues being swept under the rug. Cue the start of We Are All Human. Claudia is the founder of this organization that's mobilized more than 280 companies to create more inclusive environments and provide assistance to the underserved. They work closely with companies like U.S. Bank to provide the tools and opportunities to make sure that Latino voices and needs are incorporated into business practices. When Claudia joined us in our studio in New York, her pride and passion in her work and identity filled the room. So let me properly introduce you. Um, we're here with Claudia Romo Edelman, a former diplomat, PR expert, and founder and CEO of the organization We Are All Human. For over 25 years, Claudia was involved in organizations like UNICEF, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, and the World Economic Forum. She was also a professor of marketing for social causes at the University of Geneva, She's been ranked as one of the most powerful Latinas by the Association of Latina Professionals for America. You know that acronym, Greg, of course. It's Alpha. <laughs> Alpha. Right? I know. And, and she just happened to land on People Magazine's list of 25 most powerful Latinas. Claudia, how does, how does that word feel to you? Powerful. Um, amazing. Humanly powerful, powerfully human. I think that those uh, two great words that I would like to see more in Latinas. And do you, do you embrace it when it's applied to you? Uh, look, I have very clear in my head um, the role that I want to play for my community, how much I want to, you know, like start doing the things that I hope others can embrace. And so if that means that, you know, like for Latinos, we, we talk a lot of, you know, we preach water and drink wine in a number of ways. We're talking about leadership, but we don't want to be those leaders or we're mm -hmm. scared of it or we're not embracing them. So I think that um, it is powerful to embrace your power. And I think that mm -hmm. being um, able to authentically take your origins and your background, like like your Latinidad as a superpower, is great. And we have to have more role models that are able to 
you know, like take it and, and say like, yes, I yeah. let's be powerful and let's Step be up. united and let's be human and, you know, like step it up and, and, and lead the way. How do you say power in Spanish? Poder. Poder. I'm, I want to roll my R so bad. Poder. That was such a bad attempt. <laughs> I know. That was such a bad That's attempt. That's the whitest you've I ever t- sounded on this show with it me. Is, we, it we, is. We, I, we both let each other down. I would so agree with that. Um, <laughs> but I do that as I listen to your um, bio, Claudia. The one thing is, it first of all, just the incredible um, accomplishments that you've had in your life and your career the one thing that jumps out to me as kind of a through line is this notion of service. Um, it always feels like that you're doing this in service of something much bigger than yourself, whether it's community and. And um, that's real power. That's right? real power. And where does that come from? Like, is that something that was instilled in you early? Is that a conscious decision or just how it played out? Um, look, I think that there's, if you go memory lane, I think that all of us have oh, one or two, one or two stories that if you really pay attention, you can start seeing the beginnings of who you are even today or what you do even today, even if it's, you know, like what you were really early on. And um, and for me, I think that having my parents had three kids and I was the middle one and the three of us had this hyper rapid development. Uh, but my older uh, sister and my younger brother died when they were 18 months old. And so we all started, you know, like talking a bit too early, walking a bit too early and so on. But by the time they reached the nine month mark, they started going from running to walking, walking to sitting and then crawling and then they died. And so that put me in a position of uh, being in a microscope. I I grew up with everyone in my family, my parents, my uh, aunt, my abuelas, my everyone in my family, just checking out whether I was going to turn, right? Yeah. Like whether there was going to be a backwards and whether I remember distinctively having my aunt putting a mirror under my nose to see, you know, like at night, whether I was there or not. And so I grew up thinking and hearing my God, she's making it. She's so strong. She's so strong. Great expectations. And my abuela always say, like, there must be a reason, mija. There mm. must be a reason. And you're so strong as a fact, stronger than death. So between there mm. must be a reason, you have a mission, to I am stronger than death, meaning everything is possible and everything is, you know, doable. You can understand pretty much what I've been doing, which is go to work at the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. I'm like, yeah, bring it on, malaria. Let's go, yeah. right? Like, because everything is possible, and probably this is what I was meant to be doing anyway. So I think that that's one of the one of the stories that I can go back to and see, like, yeah, pretty much I think that it is not that I am a hyper-optimistic. It's that I I was foundationally given the background of, you can do anything and everything is possible and the world is more malleable than what we think. And you can kiss it into shape and you can kick it into shape to make something happen. And it is true. I mean, like we yeah. can see it. We've seen it, right? Like we, yeah. we've we seen the world get better. We've seen things that you would never imagine get, you know, like that would get rid of are gone. And, you know, like we, I think that we can look at the world in that more than optimistic way, mm-hmm. possibilistic way, like where everything is truly possible. I while we're hearing childhood stories, I I would like you to share a childhood abandonment story. But it's a happy childhood abandonment story, <laughs> I think, yeah. as I understand it. Right? About the time your your dad left you in a restaurant? 
on purpose. It's amazing. Purpose. Like literally no one knows these stories. It's just like you should be a detective or something like this she is, is incredible. Oh, she is. All right. So here it is. My mom and my dad couldn't be more different, right? Like mom is round, dad is square. And so he is, and they are divorced since I was two. When my my siblings died, they oh, they couldn't actually stay together. And uh, it was a lot of uh, trauma for them. And so every Sunday, my father would come and pick me up and to go to this one same restaurant to have the same one breakfast. But every time when I was like six or seven, for a number of years, not once, but for a number of years, he would put me uh, into the restaurant. He would say, like, I'll be back. And so half an hour later or something dramatically long for me, uh, he came back and he was like, all right, close your eyes. So what's the color of the shirt of the person behind you? How many plants are in the restaurant? Um, how many items are on the menu? What, what is the cheapest item that you found? And so week after week, uh, he would just test me. And the, the period of observation was shorter every time. And so I literally was, and, and my father would actually take note. If I did well, he was happy with me. Mm. If I didn't, he wouldn't be not, he wouldn't be that happy with me. So what I, uh, what I, what I, what it did to me was that it trained me to be hyper aware, like literally Terminator. I could come into a room and I would like, <laughs> so when I was with my dad, I was like scanning things and so on. And he would say, okay, and I'd like eight lamps, three plants, you know, like, and so on. So I, I think that, you know, like as a, as a kid, I didn't enjoy that. Uh, I, I suffered it a bit. It was stressful, particularly because he was, his love was a bit conditional on mm. how well mm. I did in certain things. Mm. But more than anything, now, now that you ask me that, I see that I am hyper aware, right? Like I have this training of coming to a place and, and seeing yeah. it, but also because I had to be able to be fast and respond. I was, I think that. I started seeing trends, like patterns, like, okay, when a family comes with two kids, normally they would ask for a basket of bread or, you know, like these kind of things where you start seeing trends and patterns. And I think that overall throughout my life, I've been like looking at these, um, for example, micro privileges that I mm -hmm. was able to see in different realities where people wouldn't notice them. And I was like, yeah, yeah, th there is something here that we have to address. And and because I was able to see trends, it was easy for me to put patterns and frameworks in place. And I think that that's what I've been doing all my life, like which is setting up frameworks and doing global mobilization um, campaigns and frameworks that are able to move those issues and, and sometimes just bring them to the awareness of others. That is a kind of superpower to go. First of all, I want to apologize Clearly. because it sounds like it wasn't an entirely happy situation when you were a kid. I didn't mean to diminish that. <laughs> no, no, no. Now I am yeah, grateful. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. But to go from noticing literal things like, you know, banal things, plants, what's on the menu to recognizing patterns of human behavior yeah. and the way we treat each other. That's a superpower. Yeah. And that's yeah. an amazing parental lesson. I mean, I, we're all parents. That's something I'm always trying to point out to my kids, even in, and this is going to be a very New York mm -hmm. reference, but I feel like it's germane because we're talking a lot about, um, we'll be talking about the invisibilization of, mm. of some, you know, American Latinas um, and Latinos. Um, uh, I think all of the doormen in our building, it's a New York thing, are Hispanic. Mm. And 
You can watch people walk in and out of our building all day long and not acknowledge the person who held the door for them. Yeah. And we not only do we know the name of everybody, these mm-hmm. people have seen my children grow up, right? right? Uh, I mean, Carlos got a taxi when I was about to give birth. Like I was dripping amniotic fluid and Carlos is like, let me get you to the hospital. Poor poor Claudia. He just, she just made a face. But, but I mean, not only do we hug them and get them coffee if we're going out. I mean, my husband gives them video games and Mm -hmm. you know, the, the odd cigar. These, these are, these are family. These are people in our lives. Right. And, and I want my kids to notice negatively when, when other people invisibilize them. I, I see you. And, and say, you know, uh, uh, Claudia already made this reference um, about me. One of the first things you said is I've attended a couple of things that you've been involved in. And now I understand more about you. Like that, it, it just makes so much sense because you are looking to, uh, you're looking to see people. You're looking to see what they're made of, what their essence is, what their intentions are. Um, that's a really important part of all of this. And I think that's so important in terms of the work that we're doing at U.S. Bank is about how do we see communities. We were talking about this earlier and all of our efforts are not about how U.S. Bank sees a community. It's about how a community sees itself Mm -hmm. and how do we as an organization, a financial services organization, help enable that. That's our role. Uh, But it's not about us trying to define what a community wants, what it needs, how it should behave, what it looks like. That's for the members of the community to decide. And then we mm-hmm. can help enable the potential in all of that. And I, I, I think that just like on the empathy, right, of, um, mm-hmm. of, of, of understanding that all of us can be that person that is bringing awareness and can be aware of uh, the situations. I think I, I, I grew up on, on the side of privilege where I was somehow, I, there was one moment in my life in which I felt something really strongly that put me to put that vision into action. But I think that it is when, when, when you have that eye, that when you train your eyes to be able to really observe, um, when you are always on both sides of the story where you you could be the dominant one or the, or, or the, or the weak one and so on. But I remember distinctively when I was playing soccer in the school, I was like, yeah, happy soccer player of my girls team. But I started noticing that the boys soccer team had little better times in which they were playing, little better trainers, little better understanding in the classes. And I was like, wait, is this translating into other gender inequalities and mm-hmm. so on? And at some point, uh, and at some point, um, I think that all of us can have that eye to understand yes. um, that you simply by acknowledging uh, and using your privilege to be able to acknowledge those micro you know, like moments, you're giving someone a completely different opportunity to be seen and to appear to you and to exist. To your point about like Latinos, how invisible we are to 62 million people walking in the country that have one single stereotype, which is either invisible or negative. Mm -hmm. And how easy it is when you're in the side of privilege to be able to turn on the light and say like, wait, let me just get a little deeper. Let me see a little further. Let me see how many plants are there. How many, you know, how many uh, baskets of bread are in the restaurant so that I can understand, oh, wow, there's more than a story here. And this, you know, like this community is literally bringing 
taxes and benefits and and your youth and you know like doing is running um, and culture yeah and culture and and There, and just you turn on the just light. to meet that with with witnessing and then gratitude absolutely yeah absolutely so I, that's that's a bit about your dad and and your mom your mom sounds kind of incredible to me she was Not only a competitive basketball player, for, she was a national player. She was part of Mexico, the national team. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I've she, heard part of this. And story. then she decided to wait. Then she was an economist, and then she was a soap opera and theater and film actor. What? I know. <laughs> I know. No I wonder know. you had big shoes to fill and had a notion <laughs> that you could be or do anything. No, my mom, insane. Literally three lives all together uh, from. You know, like being in the national team of basketball where she got pregnant with us and then she had to, you know, like bury two children and start mm. all over again. Wow. And she went to school. She studied economy. She was making it very successful. And then she had this thing in her heart that said, truly, I want to be an actress. And who does that when <laughs> yeah, you're 45 yeah, right. and you're like a single mom with a kid? And she went for it. And I remember distinctively being a witness of that transition where it was hard. I mean, like my father was really well established and every Sunday he would remind me of the differences of the risk that my mom was taking mm -hmm. about like, yeah, she can't afford that. She can't do that. You can't do that. Now the kids in your school are going to laugh because you don't have this and so on. And nevertheless, seeing my mom not give up on her dream, despite all the challenges and despite all the voices, you can't do that. How are you doing? This is crazy. And all of a sudden, just like see her not um it's not that she was not scared she was paralyzed she was panicking mm -hmm. and it was really hard for us but i learned from her that you're not a, you're not gonna give the decisions of your life to fear like fear shouldn't be taking the decisions she wanted to take the decision yeah. she wanted to be an actress so it's not about being fearless is because you can't be fearless you're always gonna mm -hmm. be scared particularly about the thing big things that you want to do but it was being fear free Mm. about taking decisions that she wanted to do in her life. And I think that that's the best, you know, that's the best in a way lesson that I got from her is like seeing how all of us are going to go through those moments, those bumps. You and I are in the diversity and inclusion revolution and yeah. we see a number of bumps that are on the road, but that doesn't mean that we're going to stop or we're right. going to be, you know, we, we just have to be fear free in taking the decisions that we must take so that the job gets done. It doesn't mean we're not scared, you yeah. know, like it doesn't yeah. mean we're not going to get bruised. <laughs> but I think that that's where that's where I learned that. And she became an incredible actress, like all the, you know, like the theater lights. Every time I saw her name being such a prima, you know, like actress and on on her, you know, when she died of COVID, all the Mexico and like the entire country celebrated her. Oh. And it was celebrating her bravery mm. of that, you know, like that decision to take your life in your hand and move on. You grew up in Mexico? Yeah. So did you ever, did you experience discrimination as as a young person? Not as a young person. I um I I left Mexico when I uh, literally on on my prom night I went with my hair sprayed and my you know prom <laughs> dress to the plane. I went straight into Europe and I never came back. Hold on. How high was the hair in Mexico? It was high. Okay, because it, it was high, high in Georgia too. And it just namaste. High, high, high. I, I and see like you. All the crepe and I <sighs> like two yeah. bottles on one go. Okay, it's impossible Respect. to. Yeah, yeah, totally. 
You had um, a high flat top, right, yeah. Greg? We're, we're all I here did, on this. Yeah. 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 More so, of a nappy fro, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wait, so you prom, left on prom night. I, I left on prom. I, I left on prom morning because I I partied the entire night. Of course you did. And, uh, and to go where? To Europe. I went to start a new life. I thought it was going to be a trip, but then it became my life and my work. And I, I, I. I became a journalist. I like I was became I started journalism and I started working as a press correspondent in different countries. Then I moved to diplomacy. Uh, and in all those countries, imagine like the German part of Switzerland, Germany, uh, France, I felt a minority there. Mm-hmm. That for sure. And uh, but very quickly, in a way, it didn't matter really the setting where I was or the discussions that I had. One, I was a woman and, it, you know, like 25 years ago, you could feel the big difference in the seriousness in which your counterparts treated you being a woman or not. But the other one is what, like I was uh, an exotic, you know, like rumba for the <laughs> eyes of like these, you know, like Germanic counterparts that I had. So every time yeah. I had to go and negotiate anything from refugee treaties to public health issues, I saw the imaginary pineapple growing on the top of the head of my, my counterpart. And they were like, ah, it didn't matter what I said. They were like just listening to their own imaginary voices of rumors. Wait, South, wait, what does imaginary pineapple mean? I've never yeah, heard. Is this a metaphor? What does that mean? I saw how, you know, like I came in and they started, you know, like it, it, like bumping their imaginary dresses of oh, Carmen Miranda. And, I see. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'm glad you clarified that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, like I saw It's that. an important DEI term, the imaginary pineapple. <laughs> the imaginary pineapple. But I see what you mean. But totally. I took it, I, I actually learned very quickly that that was a great advantage because as much as I use the stereotype to distract them, they would sign the fastest. I would like, <laughs> yeah. sign here, my yeah. love, and I'll dance for you, whatever you whatever want. You want. <laughs> no problem, amigo. Let's go. Uh, but I, that's where I started feeling... Um, you know, like Othered. what it feels to be a minority, what yeah. truly feels to be different, what truly feels to not being understood and no connection with language or values or anything else. And how it is important to learn the game, to translate mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. as the wonderful film of translators um, that I learned about. We will be um, talking about that. It is how yes. important it is to be able to translate uh, and navigate the game wherever you are, whether the language is a spoken language mm-hmm. or there are different rules of the game that you had no idea or how to play. What kind of journalism were you doing? I was a press correspondent. I did radio, news agencies. I did uh, newspapers. I studied journalism. I was very um, interested in uh, storytelling, in sharing the stories of the voices of the people. I was very, like, as a young kid, I was very, I'll tell you one story. Um, my in Mexico in in my country in 1985 there was a massive set of earthquakes that shook the entire country uh, the entire city apologies and uh, it was devastating and there were like one and then another and then another for several days and after the first first earthquake everybody that I know went out in the streets and just like started looking at shelter because buildings were falling apart were falling down in that moment and you could start seeing how the self-organization of people like, okay, shelter here and food here and and so on. And I was in part of these volunteering teams that was sweeping the streets to see whether there were people trapped in those buildings. 
And um, everybody was volunteering. I mean, like literally there was nothing. It was emergency, chaos, SOS. So there was, it was not heroic or anything. Mm. Um, and so in my group, uh, we were walking through the streets and it was very confusing. Ambulances, sound, helicopters, smoke. And I just had this feeling that made me stop. And I just started screaming out loud, really, really loud, like, stop, stop, stop. And so the guy that was, you know, one of the guys turned around and said, like, what? And I was like, I think I heard a voice. And he was so upset. He was like, think or heard. And I just looked at him and started screaming even louder, like, stop, come back, come back, come back. So he came back. And by the time he was here with me, both of us were able to hear the voice. There was oh. someone trapped. Wow. So both of us looked at each other and started screaming louder, like, stop, stop. So two more people came. The four of us started screaming until we were 20 of us or something like that. We started pushing that wall for like hours, at least that's what it felt, mm. until we were able to break through. And poof, there was the light coming from down and there they were the eyes of this little girl that oh was trapped in the gosh. building oh. and that was uh literally the first uh, like with the eyelashes dusted and looking at us like as yeah. you got me right and that was the first ever time in my life in which i felt useful yeah it was an overwhelming feeling of oh <gasps> Yeah. This just happened to me, but also it was the first time that I understood my father screaming like, ah, you're so loud, you're so loud, you don't know <laughs> to do anything but just to be loud and to do parties. Those are the two things that you know how to do well. And I think that I was able to understand days later, I was like, being loud is a great thing, by the yeah. way. Oh, hallelujah. And I, I just like thought that journalism could give me that voice yeah. of being able to talk for others and to bring the attention of people that didn't see it. Like I could have gone through that building mm -hmm. and just like I was able to get the attention of someone. And that's that's somehow what I've been doing for the last <laughs> five years. You're getting the attention of the right people. There you go. And and also listening. Yeah. He, being yeah. being open to Observant, hearing. Aware, aware the back to the awareness. Thing, yeah, right? that's, that's life changing. I mean, that, that had to change you in such profound ways and decisions you made after that. And I do think that, you know, like in a way, all of us probably have that piece and that corn and that mm -hmm. a lot of the Latinos, for example, have so many layers of barriers, mm -hmm. cultural, social and personal barriers that mm -hmm. don't allow you to go to who you are mm -hmm. and do what you want to do because you're told, calladita, te ves más bonita, don't rock the boat or mm -hmm. social stereotypes don't let you to be seen as a pilot of your life or as a leader. You're seen as a drug addict or a gardener or, a, you know, like lobbyist. Uh, what about you want to be an architect? And you don't yeah. see that in social stereotypes. So I think that that's where... You know, like it's, I think it is so important to have um, companies that actually mm -hmm. like you that are putting their, you know, like the resources into building trust in depicting us in a way that allows us to see ourselves represented there with the desires that we have, with the dreams that we have, with the wings that are the size of what we have and not being depicted as, you know, like small or invisible in a corner. Um I think that there's a beautiful time that we're seeing where um, people are getting aware yeah. of yeah. Um, the fluidity of how many things you can all be and our humanity. And particularly with AI coming, there's going to be an increasing yeah. value on 
the people aspect, the, 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 you know, like the having the humanity piece. So I think that shame on us if we don't nail this down. I, one of, you know, one of the things I really, um, really admire about you is I think you're at the forefront of that entire movement that you just talked about is this cultural awakening that I, I observe, um, in the Hispanic community in particular about just earning, uh, uh, owning the, who you are. And from the first time I met you, like that, you just exuded that, like this, this incredible cultural pride of who you are and where you were from. And I think I sense that more and more of that is happening because people like yourself and so many others who are in positions and have achieved a certain amount of success are more uh, brave and courageous about talking about how proud they are to be Latino and embracing their culture and saying, I don't need to change who I am um, to fit into these spaces. I don't need to try to assimilate um, in the ways that maybe other generations sort of encouraged um, so many of us to do. Um, and I just, I think your voice is so prominent in that. Um, I don't know if you give yourself enough credit for that, but I, and you use data um, in your background in business and diplomacy, and I'm in bank, like bankers love data, which is why I always love you come and you like have so much important data to share and you back it up with such, um, such substance. Um, it's just, I just want to applaud you for that. <laughs> no, but you know what? I, um, I, I love data. I totally yeah. love data. I can, I've I, seen I, you I, give a speech where yeah. you drop like, 10 statistics yeah. in two minutes. She's like, the queen. Whoo! She's the queen of this. Yeah. But it's the patterns <laughs> and this is what you understand. But I think, look, this is the first time in my life in which I'm not against the current. So this is a right for me. This is amazing because if, um, if I look, for example, in public health or AIDS, people were dying. Uh, there was no hope. There was no vaccine. There was no nothing. And you had to actually keep the public giving and saying like, look, we have to continue, you know, like we have to continue supporting people and the countries were like stop starting to like voters and taxpayers don't want to give anymore. And, you know, like and, and, and everybody was running like chicken without heads, like the non-for-profits were on one side and tying themselves to the desk of the senators and the churches were closing their doors saying like condoms are not allowed here. And, you know, like it was some madness. And all of a sudden I was part of and a witness of the beginning of, I think, that the new way in which developing is done, which, you know, like the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria was created. And we brought everybody on board from the pharma to the non-for-profits, to the governments and, and, and everybody said like, OK, stop fighting everybody for their, your own little basket. How what are the one or two things that are going to make us win the battle against this virus? How are we going to beat AIDS? And we cannot do it independently. We have to do it together. So it was like a lot of months of actually fighting and saying until we came to the conclusion that all of us, regardless of where you are, regardless of what you believe in, even, we had to agree that we needed a, a medicine that was affordable for us and we, we needed uh, for all and then we needed to fight stigma. And once we agreed on those two things, the world changed. And literally from the millions of dollars that we were able to raise, it became billions. And PEPFAR was created and the U.S. was incredible. And I was able to be part of the construction of something called Product Red, where you were able to bring the consumer into the picture and start looking at 
So I think that it is possible to arrange when there's a number of, when something is urgent, you can't do it alone, but you have to do it in a way that is organized. So organizing, you know, like people to have one or two goals. Mm -hmm. I think that it is the, the biggest lesson that I've seen again and again throughout development. And I think that that's possible actually with the Latino community where, you know, we actually have to agree on every Latino has to have an equal opportunity yeah. and we have to be seen and heard and valued. And you're able to convey a lot of players, whether it's corporate America, that's my biggest partner, by the way, corporate America. I believe that corporate America, if we are able to mobilize corporate America, Latinos and the country and corporate America are going to be better off in the next yes. 10 years. But if we bring civil society, you being the government, you being the, the media, then if we can agree that we need to remove the cloud that is, you know, like covering the site for Latinos, uh, if we're able to appreciate that Latinos are contributors to the country and you move them from invisible to visible, from negative to positive and from takers to makers, then mm -hmm. everybody's going to be better off. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's where I'm a true believer that this is possible, that we're in the right, in the right you know, like train. And I hope that, you know, like with being a marketer and a brand builder, bringing a brand to the equation, the way that, you know, like Latinos don't have a brand and we have to be rebranded 100%. <laughs> uh, okay. There's, there's so, there's, there's so much. In there's there. so much. Yeah. Look at me. I'm, I'm furiously taking notes on my pink legal pad. <laughs> um, you don't usually see the pink legal pad when we're on Zoom, right? But I that. never work without my pink legal huh. pad. Um, data. So drop a few of your favorite data points on us. Oh yeah. I I love Well, here let's lead with the uh the mic drop about the GDP. Yes. So Latinos we are the people, uh 62 million people, 20% of the population today and growing. And growing, 30% tomorrow. So by 2050 <laughs> Make your calendars everybody. <laughs> by 2050 one in every 3 American will be Latino. Hello, hello, hola. Yeah. Hello, yeah. hello, hola. Yeah, we got to learn Spanish. So, right? It's not only it's the one of people. My favorites right there. Yeah, hello, I love hello. it. Hello. I'm so doing a t-shirt. Hello, so like it's so good. So we are the people. We're the youth, the youngest of all. The um, 28 years old average. Uh, wow. That's 10, 10 years younger than the rest of the population. But I think that the data point that I love the most of the age is the mode, which is the most common. The most common age of Latinos. The most common age of 62 million people today is 19 years old. The most common age of non-Latinos is 61 years old. So that there, like wherever you had any doubt about where the future is, yeah. that's it. Okay, it's so stop. I think stories. it's more like, hello <laughs> and hola, right? <laughs> that's a lot of old people. No way. <laughs> okay, go ahead. That's so great. So we're the, we're, the, we're the people, we're the youth, and we're the economy. So P.S. So, when you say 19 years old, I just start thinking about voters. Yeah. Can you imagine if all those young yeah. Latino people decide to vote in their own best interests, right? I mean, like yeah. every minute Powerful. a Latino turns 18. So for the next couple of elections, there is no way a politician can win uh -uh. the vote, can win elections without Latinos. Yeah. Not for this election, but the next one, yeah. because of the age growth, there is no way that, mm -hmm. you know, like we, we're 20% of the Gen Z, 29% of Alpha. So, um, and on the, on the economy is $2.8 trillion the size of our economy. So um, we generate 12% of the GDP. That gives me the right to go out in the street and look at everybody in the eye and say, like, you're welcome for the 12% of your salary and your <laughs> salary. And if you're a bank, you start looking at that GDP and the growth of the GDP of Latinos, which grows 7% faster than China. 
So, I mean, China's did, economy is slowing down, whereas like GDP of Latinos is growing mm-hmm. 7% faster than them. Did I hear you say that that number is, would make the um, American Latino population the fifth largest GDP in the world if it were a country? Is that's that right? right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So it is larger I, than the UK, larger than Italy, than Brazil, than, than Canada. Absolutely. And and the the issue with the data is that it is very compelling when you're trying to understand consumer patterns and consumer behavior because you start looking at this is not charity this is growth and mm-hmm. there's a, from the Fortune 500 company their growth in the next five to seven years depend thirty percent to one hundred twenty percent depending on the the industry where you are of Latinos and I don't see those numbers invested in in marketing projects in advertisement in educational projects and so on. And it is a quite simple formula. This is not like doing mole, right? Like like a, a Mexican dish that takes three days. This is like a real quick uh, scrambled eggs thing. Like you really need to understand where, you know, like where, cons- where the future is. You need to have an, a Latino strategy, regardless of where you are. And then you have to start understanding that we are a uh, we, we're, we're, we're a group that is grassroots and community related. Mm-hmm. So you can't go for our wallet without going to our community. That's why the brilliance of Greg having these, you know, like initiatives um, is incredibly paying off. He's going to take a little longer to pay off than just like doing ads. But if you go to our grassroots, if you're investing in our future, if you're investing us in portraying us in a way that really depict us in a way that will make our grandmother's efforts being worth, then you're going to have our loyalty. And Latinos, if there's one value that we have, is that we're loyal. Mm -hmm. And because what really unites us, and this is the last data point that I would like to leave you with, is like what really unites us, and people are very, very clearly having, like uh, trying to access the Latino community, and it's hard because Dominicans are different than uh, Venezuelans, Mexicans, Colombians. We don't talk to each other. We don't, you know... Um, but what really unifies us is not language, is not religion, is not political um, affiliation. It's our desire to progress, mm-hmm. to move forward, to achieve the American dream. So if you look at our values, we care about our community. And because we want to progress, you invest in our future. You invest in giving us the tools that we need so that we can set up our first business, so that we can have money um, to put scholarships in, in you know, like in 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 our bank, in our bank, give us some banking scholarships so that we can go to school. If you understand that what we want is progress, then you understand that Hispanic progress is American progress. We want the same things that everybody else does in in America, and I, what I find so fascinating um, about what you just laid out for us is the your Hispanic strategy is not a separate diversity initiative. Like it actually is your growth strategy exactly. as an organization. Mm-hmm. Like they shouldn't be separated in that way. Any company that wants to grow has to understand that they have to win with um, the Hispanic community in order to achieve its business goals, which is why we approach it as this notion of inclusive growth really is the business case for diversity. Like if, if we can, honestly sort of set aside this notion that our, our work in these communities is a diversity initiative, but it is much more about how we as an organization are going to grow. And it's embedded into the business as part of your normal business practices. You've got, uh, and your overall business goal includes how you're going to win with, uh, with Hispanics and, and diverse communities. 
that's how we'll actually make progress. What what has happened for too long is companies have treated it um, as if it's a diversity initiative, and oh, the diversity team's got it, and we don't need to focus on it. If I'm you know running a a, a business, um, those days are long gone. You know, diversity initiatives have failed for so long because we haven't made it a business imperative, and we haven't looked at communities like the Hispanic community and said this is actually our growth strategy. It's a critical component. We're 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 growing in California, as many of you know. We just completed an acquisition of a, a bank, Union Bank in, in California. And so when we look at California and talk about an economy, I mean, the economy of California is, you know, would make it alone uh, one of the top 10 GDPs in the world. You cannot win in California if you don't win in the Hispanic community. And so that's not a Hispanic strategy. It's not a diversity strategy. It's a California strategy. Right. Because that's who, that's who the customer is. Um. And so we've got to get past this notion of otherism, which you talk a lot about faith, and just make sure that all of these efforts become a normal part of our business strategy, but just who we are as an organization. But I, but just to, just to say on that, the the issue is that from the Fortune 500, only eight percent have a Latino strategy or a growth strategy that is based on Latinos. So you have a vast majority of yeah. companies that are putting us aside, and yeah. that will mean that when they wake up, probably we will have gone the way that Latinos made the switch from Johnson & Johnson to Honest, yes. because Honest was like Latina-led and, you know, like running, yeah. uh, representing our values. You will start seeing uh, a shift. Latinos don't bark. We don't bite. Mm. But we, if we truly don't like something, we walk out quietly. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you will all of a sudden see a 20% of the market drop out of your potential growth mm-hmm. and actually be a reverse. Companies that are doing it super well, and I'm going to start including you. And, and again, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm just you. your guest, but companies <laughs> that are doing it super well do have a really deep understanding of the consumer market, the the the, the Latino consumer, and our and our desires. I love your values, our values, but also our usage and how we are. CVS, for example, the um, CVS, the pharmacy. Um, has started something that is very quiet. I don't know how many people don't know about this, but it's called CVS IMAS. And what they did was observe where uh, population growth of Latinos, high concentration of of population of Latinos with the lack of um, medical facilities or pharma facilities. And they established these pharmacies that um, are spoken in language so that, you know, like you don't have to have the kids go to the pharmacy and start looking at the medicines. And they started looking at the behavior of Latinos uh, to serve them better. Two examples. Um, Latinas don't use in, in, in internal protection. We prefer mm. external protection. So they actually went to companies like Procter & Gamble and said, like, look, I don't want Tampax. I want always, mm. which is counterintuitive to the rest of mm. the, the drug, you know, like drugstores uh, behavior. Their growth was 300 percent, of course. Wow. Um, we don't buy detergent soap in small doses the way that you will buy normally in pharmacies. Why? Because we have multi-generational families, <laughs> la abuela, la tia, families. everybody grows, like everybody comes and they wash together to talk and so on. So mm-hmm. um, they started actually selling 150 milliliters as opposed to 50 milliliters and the growth went there. So that's when I mean you do need to have an understanding of your growth. Uh, they started with 20 of these CVS and EMAs. Now they're like 800. They're going to go to 2,000 of these uh, mm-hmm. stocker cells. And, and you start looking at 
that kind of understanding of the market, serving the market with, you know, like the food that we want. Mm-hmm. With it goes it, back to the, being seen. Yes. We, we see you. So here's, what, here's what you want. And it's good business for everybody. It's good business for everybody. But it, and um, those kinds of insights and product design, when you start with that, with the Hispanic consumer in mind, and you design products and services based on the insights of that community, you actually see the benefits in other communities as well. Yeah, it's one hundred percent. You 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 are actually developing and innovating, um, which is the other business case for diversity, in my opinion, is innovation. Uh, but you actually capture more of the overall market as well, because those same insights are actually present in other markets as well. Mm. There are other people that want that one hundred and fifty milliliter bottle who have big families. Um, so when you start from that place, um, you'll see the benefits across all consumer segments. And you haven't asked me about my what would be my dream in that space, but I'll tell you if you ask me, of course. What would be your dream in that Thank space? Thank you. I, I so, want to ask as well. Just <laughs> I don't want to be left out. What would be your dream in that space, Claudia? I think that the combination of um, Latinos be willing, like having a pain point of invisibility and having our driver being progress, I would love. And, 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 giving, and having so much money on the table that we're leaving as brands and companies for me, the dream would be to have a Hispanic Heritage Month that is like Pride meets Halloween, where we see the entire country mm. fire up celebration of Latino stories, celebration of the Hispanic stars that you have in your own company, where U.S. Bank could actually say like, and here is Maria and here is Pedro. And I celebrate the Hispanic star customers that I have. And that's why the Hispanic star, the brand that we are trying to elevate and build could become almost like the rainbow for the LGBTQ and can actually generate the amount of customer loyalty, attraction, and also celebration and pride for Latinos that we're so desperately having. So if you Why give it not? to me, Hispanic Heritage Month, Pride yeah. meets Halloween. Let's celebrate. Let's have it everywhere. Talking about the celebrations like of that. Latinos. I too. And, and having, a, having a stand where you say, I care for you. I see you. And the thing that mm. I love about Pride Month is I feel like everybody's invited to it. Right. Yes. You, you don't you yes, can be an ally. So. Right. So very I, so. I want to I want to be included in that kind of celebration. Right. You can stand up as a friend, as yeah. a simpatico, yeah. as an amigo. You can actually celebrate. And, you know, with the demographic numbers that I shared with you, if you're not a Latino today or you're not a related to you to a Latino today, do not worry. You will be tomorrow. <laughs> We're fifty-one percent of the population. That data drop. Yeah. So it's a data drop. So, so that was that was real. Here's what I want to ask you because because you are powerful with the data drops and you have this background as as a professor. I mean, you've done PR. You you can you you advise people on how to market. You were professor of of marketing strategies for social causes. If if you've just outlined all these positive stereotypes about your community. What's what's a PR campaign like? Why, why, if if you could just P, if you could be the the nationwide PR consultant for all of American Latinos, what would you do? Why doesn't everybody know this good stuff? It will, we will. It will take us a little time, but we will get there. Where I think that every brand, every company, um, every leader is going to be talking about Hispanics as stars, positive contributors to the country. Um, understanding that America is made of stars and Hispanics are one of them, looking at us in an aspirational, celebratory way where we're seeing um, the contributions, the did you knows, the understanding. I think that if I could have it my way, 
Um, I would have Latinos elevate their self-regard and the social mm -hmm. understanding of Latinos. Mm -hmm. And I would have our main counterpart, which is corporate America, be able to provide us a platform to celebrate us. So I would say that we've been Hispanic stars all along since the 16th century, but we just had a huge cloud in front of us that is covering this shine. So I think that it is a time for all of us to join forces and remove those clouds so that we can have Hispanics being able to shine, and, uh, shine bright. And in the same way we talked yes. about your um, harnessing your loudness to help amplify the voices of others, you throughout your career, which has been itinerant, right, but always on this arc of of helping people, right? Always on this arc of flexing your power for the good of others. You have focused on highlighting people's narratives, on storytelling. And and you have, I, I saw that you have this book series called Hispanic Stars Rising. Right. And I went, I, I was like, oh, I wonder, I, I thought you just published one book. And I, I went to the website and I think you're soliciting stories for Hispanic Stars Rising Roman four. numeral four, yeah. right? Yeah. So so what what role does that kind of storytelling play? I think data and history, particularly for the Latino community in this particular marketing campaign, let's put it that way. Um, data and history are going to be our best friends to make sure that throughout the storytelling and throughout understanding our own contributions to the country, our own power, we're going to be able to do the flipping the script turning tables where Latinos are seen uh, and are acting from a position of power. I just told you, I can go out in the street and I look at everybody with the sense of like, you're welcome for the 12% of your salary. <laughs> so if I can make every Latino have that shift instead of feeling like pobrecito, I just came to the country, don't understand. If I am able to see the translators as, wow, you were not pobrecito because your mom didn't speak English. It's like, wow, what an amazing girl you are that you were able to be a student, but also a translator. And with that mindset, you can probably be multitasking and doing everything. Mm -hmm. And you're a natural leader. If we're able to power Latinos through data and uh, and history, uh, through the creation of content, awards, uh, books, radio campaigns, and everything that we can, then I think that we're going to be able to um, increase the unity and the pride of Latinos. And I think that that's uh, the recipe for Latino progress, which again, Hispanic progress is American progress. So is everything that you just articulated, is that what this organization you created, We Are All Human, is that what you do? That's all about, that's that's it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and, and so that's huge. And those are all big ideas. How do you do it? What What does We Are All Human do? We mobilize and equip Corporate America. We work with 320 companies to help them to get a Latino strategy in place so that they can engage genuinely with Latinos as, as employees, as the community, and then consumers. On the other hand, we work with the 100 most important Latino organizations so that we can be singing from the same song sheet. We can be sharing the data. We have everything we need so that we can, you know, like we can go and represent those 15 million or 20 million Latinos that each of those leaders represent so that we can activate um, our goal of being seen, heard, and valued. And I think that those two pieces in between the execution that we do is a lot of content, a lot of campaigning, a lot of mobilization. We go to 
Um, we go to places where Latinos have not been. Um, that should be like the United Nations, the World Economic Forum. We go with a delegation of Latinos to, the, to Davos. We are going next week to the Cannes Advertisement Festival with new data that we're doing with Nielsen and Paramount, um, you know, to equip marketers. And we're bringing a delegation of Latinos. We're going to the United Nations General Assembly uh, to bring the Latino story to the global story, because we just need to be in the room where it happens. If you're not at the table, then you're probably in the menu. And I don't want to be in the menu. I want to be part of the conversation. So that's what we're doing. <laughs> and, and, and for the bank, um, a big part of our partnership um, with We Are All Human was signing the Hispanic Promise. That's right. Back in 2019, I that's think. That's right. One of the first. What is that we were promise? one of the first. Um, it's a promise faith to make sure as an organization we are committed to promoting, retaining, recruiting, promoting, and retaining Hispanic executives in our company and developing unique programs um, to develop leadership skills. Um, and what's come out of that, in addition to a number of um, the initiatives we've talked about, um, is we started hosting a, a Hispanic Leadership Summit. Um, which we are having in August, where we bring together the top 150 Hispanic leaders in our company and our CEO and our entire management committee comes. And um, we do leadership development, we do community building, um, and we also uh, notify the managers of all these leaders because we all know the biggest barrier to advancement in any company, any situation, and people don't leave organizations. They leave your, they leave their managers, you know, that whole mm. notion. So we want to make sure that their leader is actually bought into their development as well. And so this is not about fixing our Hispanic leaders in the organization, um, but it is providing them a unique experience where they get to communicate, be in a room with each other, but they get to be in a room with the top leaders in our organization. As I said, our CEO kicks off the whole thing. He does a whole panel on leadership and career. Um, our entire managing, management committee participates, and it's just a wonderful couple of days um, where we bring in different parts of the bank to sort of help these leaders better understand what does development look like for them. They all leave um, in their assignment out of this. So the follow-up action to the Leadership Summit is always a development plan. Mm -hmm. is to make sure that every individual has a development plan that's bought into by their manager so their manager is invested in their success as well. So these are the kinds of things that come out of the Hispanic promise that our CEO signed uh, back in 2019. And that's the dream of an organization like ours that is willing to mobilize and equip someone like him in a company like theirs yeah. so that they have all the elements, the data, the navigation, with confidence so that you don't have to like, oh, in this council culture, can I say yeah. Latino, Latinx? And we just equip with everything you need. And their support allows our organization to be able to do toolkits and mm -hmm. to further the Hispanic promise and the framework. Pretty much, I think that the Hispanic promise is um, the overarching framework that mm -hmm. will allow corporate America, because every one of the yeah. Latino organizations is behind it to say I belong. And so I think it is going to become a certificate. The way that you have the little molar on the toothpaste when you go, it's like yeah. still by, yeah. stamped by the, by the, by the dentist yeah. association. I think that the Hispanic promise will become a symbol of this is a company that I can come in and work because I will be able to be welcomed. This is an inclusive environment for Latinos. 
because you made a promise to us and you're abiding it. And so I think that that's where, you know, like it becomes a win-win for everybody. This is a, like his actions are a win for Latinos, are a win for the company and yeah. are a win for the country. Uh, yeah, you've just another little piece of data, a little nugget I got from you. you, you diverse companies are more profitable by 35%? Yeah, if not yeah. more. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, that's a that's a stat. Um, actually, McKinsey's been studying that for years. And um, as my friend Greg would say, hello. Hello. <laughs> right. I mean, it, and, and, and I think equally as important to what the stat is, it's why that is. And if you think about it, yes, diverse companies are more profitable because they make better decisions. They actually have um, discussion and innovation. Uh, they're more creative. They're more innovative. Um, they're serving diverse markets. So they're able to actually meet customers' needs more effective. Like that's, yeah, the stat is great, but the reason behind it um, is where I think we have to have uh, much more conversation. And I think that the other side of that coin is the risk that unless yeah. you take action, the cost of inaction is that 76% of Latinos do not feel that they can be themselves at the workplace. So if you're Jorge, you have to pretend to be George when you come to work. Right. And you bring yourself at home, you bring, you leave yourself at home, you come to work with someone you have never met. Yes. And you are like trying to, you know, like assimilate and be part of a company which probably will leave the best of you outside. So yeah. your passion, yes. your, you know, like incredible loudness, your commitment, your enthusiasm is going to be gone and you're going to like pretend to be a robot out there. Yeah. And that is probably going to cause not only uh, disenfranchisement and low effectiveness, but also a revolving door for companies. Because if someone is like showing your leg outside, saying like you can be yourself here, you're probably going to leave even if you don't want it. And this is so true. Yeah. Um, a couple of years ago, Um, a couple of years ago, I went to the Cannes Advertisement Festival and I am like, I've been there forever. And it took me even a couple of years to even be awake that there were no sessions on Latinos. I am a Latina activist. And I even <laughs> going there, I was like, wait, wait, hello. Um, <laughs> and so I created the most, uh, the first ever Hispanic session in the Cannes Advertisement Festival. And um, it was a packed room. And, you know, like all the big wigs of the Latino market and so on were there. And Mark Pritchard, the chief mm-hmm. marketing officer of Procter Gamble, yeah. six billion dollars in, in, in his advertisement budget. All the media are like, Mark, Mark, Marquito, you know, like and so on. So they all everybody wants, you know, like probably like the, the client of the century. Yeah. So yeah. we started the session with Mark. Uh, saying like, hi, everybody, thank you for being here. My name is Mark Richard, but my real name is actually not Mark Richard, it's Nikki Gonzalez. I just mm. never wanted to say it because I was scared that I was not going to be able to be where I am today. But I don't want any more Nikki's pretending to be Marks and any more Gonzalez pretending to be Preacher. So I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. What? I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I have never is. heard this before. That's powerful. Three years ago. Do you know the amount of people that have doubled their application to come and work in Procter Gamble because of that? Do you know the number of people that feel they can have an accent and could speak where before they couldn't because they yeah. weren't, they didn't want to be, you know, like this uh, uh, corner because of their accent because of that one moment. So if we can have, you know, yeah. like more role, role models and leaders because of the Hispanic promises allowing you to understand that having role models and, and having seniority is going to give you more representation all the way through. 
is really what I think it is, what World Human is all well, about. Our, our lead board director is Hispanic. So if anybody's listening and that helps you want to work at U.S. Bank, you know, I just want to throw that out there. Roland Hernandez, our lead director, is Hispanic. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Have you had moments when you've, you've been talking to a small group or one-on-one with someone who is Latino and you've, you've shared some of these statistics to someone who hasn't previously known them or felt empowered, where you see a, a light go on for somebody? Yeah, all the time. And look, when I moved to America nine years ago, um, I I felt quite weird about, one, the discrepancy between the data that I was reading and the reality that I was living. Yeah. I was like, wait, why are we so powerful on paper, but so weak in our reality? Why are we so big? In the numbers, and but so then quiet. Latinos feel so small. But because when I spoke to Latinos, they were like, no, 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 no. And I'm like, wait, it doesn't make sense. But also when I went to the streets, when I was looking at the lobbies, when I was like having a, a coffee in a restaurant and I recognized the Latino, I was like, hola, amigo. And they were like, oh, hello, hello. Uh, me, me, no, uh, me no Spanish. And I was like, what do you mean me no Spanish? You're from Mexico like me. I can hear you. I can, I can smell you, right? Yeah. Like, and and it was like a denial and they wanted me not to discover them as Latinos. And that has changed so dramatically in nine years. We're about to launch our Hispanic sentiment studying the Canada Advertisement Festival, where we were able to measure that incredible trend to Latinidad that has happened from the last five years, where we measured in 2018 and we're releasing the 2023 results. And despite COVID and despite, you know, like political affiliation, despite everything, the proudness, the pride of Latinos is growing so dramatically. Latinos are embracing their language by 14 points. Latinos are, you know, like are are by far more, that waiter that eight years ago didn't want to say hello to me will seat me first because I'm a Latina in a Mm. restaurant. That person, you know, like that didn't want to say my my name is Nikki Gonzalez if I'm a preacher is taking out their, their mask. So for all brands and for all the audience and for everyone, pay attention. There is a trend happening. There's something under, you know, like you feel it under your feet that Latinos are willing to come out. And because of our numbers and because of our education and because of the campaigns are working, I think that we're going to be able to witness how this generation might be the last generation that is put aside in that way, that is not seen, not heard, not valued. And we might be able to see the next one generation, like my daughter's generation, where they will be fully seen and fully paid and fully recognized, being able to go to a bank and say, like, I want to be your client. I want you to, yeah. you know, like, I want you to invest You're lucky in me. to have me. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're lucky to have me. Is This is why you say, I love this quotation from you, the world is getting browner, more feminine, and with a bigger heart. <laughs> Sounds good to me. It is, though. It is happening. It is 100% the case. And I think that um, when you start recognizing um, not only the population growth and the trends, like in demographics, uh, the movement, people in movement, whether migration is tough or not, you know, like people are on the move. So that will continue being the case. But I think that what you can totally see is that. Um, the trends of young people be willing to be more fluid and more respectful of the self and how much you're not going to tell me that I can be Latino here 
I'm not Latino here or that I am, you know, like in every sense, the fluidity of the self in the younger generations is more and they are paying attention and the consumer democracy is there. I will open my wallet to brands that uh, I have an affinity with my values. If you're bad to someone, I won't buy from you. Mm -hmm. I'll buy from someone else. And if you're a good company, I'll buy from you. And I'll actually sacrifice my salary to work in a place where I feel that I'm giving purpose. And, you know, like where, where gender matters, where, you know, like where acceptance is the name of the game. So the, the world is browner, more feminine, and with a bigger heart. I can't believe that you have all these quotes. It's amazing. You're like the that most incredible. Like, Look, I get a tattoo right here. <laughs> but, uh, but it is not only that's the case, but also I think that that's their smart case because diversity and inclusion is here to stay. It will be the flag, whether it call, it's called that way or something else, it will be the flag that will lead growth uh, in the next decade, the way that sustainability was for 20 years ago regardless of the anti-ESG, anti-DEI, all these efforts, you know, like all these things are just bumps in the road yeah. where the consumer wants to be able to be themselves and be appreciated for all their selves, all yeah. their, 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 their diverse and, and beautiful selves. You, you can't stop what's inevitable, which is <laughs> the diversifying or browning of the population of our country and um, I, I wonder um, if you have experience, Claudia, or any thoughts on, you know, one of the things that troubles me about the work of DEI sometimes is when the diverse segments, you know, you think about Black and Asian, Hispanic and others, um, that there almost feels like at times there's this race to not be on the bottom amongst groups in that there should be more solidarity between communities. And, um, have you had experiences where, We've been able to bring communities together and work in collaboration more holistically as diverse communities to say, hey, like we're actually better together <laughs> and we actually, you know, have can make more progress in, in working more collectively. Yes. And I do think that that starts with uh, with, again, the listening and the understanding. Mm -hmm. Look, in this country, there's more tortillas sold on bread. There's more salsa sold on ketchup. Is that uh, true? Yeah. And that's been the wow. case forever. Yeah. But if you look at that trend, you might also go a little step further ahead and say like, wow, but what does that mean for an 80-year-old lady that lives in a maybe border town where she goes to the store and she doesn't find her bread anymore and she doesn't look at anybody and she doesn't understand that why the world is not what it used to be before. And if you're not empathetic to that reality too, if you don't understand mm -hmm. that at the end of the day, this change that we're all feeling affects us all and and creates fears on everybody on the, is the world that I know is going to stop? Am I going to be like left behind? And then, then you're going to get into these fights of different groups. But I do think that if you understand that we are all human and that if you have a little bit more understanding that there is such a risk of creating a sense of the otherness, mm -hmm. then you want to bust those bubbles and make sure that you do understand the 80-year-old 80 80 year lady that wants her bread and there's no more bread, there's tortillas. And that, you know, like at the end of the day, we are by far more connected than not. If I tell you just data-wise, Latinos, there's, you know, we're 62 million people today, but, um, but one in every three African-American is a Latino. Mm -hmm. So that makes... 15 million Afro-Latinos. Did you know that? 
Greg? I didn't know the stat, but I mean, the, it, the one thing about Hispanic, like it's not a... It's not a race. It's, it's not a race. Right. Like but it, is, but, but it then, includes but, all of... Yeah. yeah. But then it's one richness. in every four Native American is a Latino. Latinos, mm. 22% of Latinos identify as LGBTQ. So when you start looking at different groups, you're like, well, that's everything. Right, yeah. like that's yeah. pretty much everything. Mm -hmm. uh, the number of disability, uh, like the percentage of disability within the Latino community is high. So it it is almost like trying to understand that there's no um, that there's no way that you can win a race because there's no race and there's no <laughs> one seat at the table because there's yes. no table. There's only a country full of opportunities for everybody if we support each other, mm -hmm. if we take the access code when we need it and we share it with others, mm -hmm. if we're able to understand the intersectionalities then we're better off. That's why I love you even more. Because the film that you did yesterday of translators is done by a non-Latino telling a Latino story, supported by a company, you know, like a company that happens to be lucky enough to have a leader like you that is seeing my community without being yours. That's why I was asking you before, like, is your wife Latina? Like, yeah. I'm trying to understand, but I shouldn't have to try to understand. I should be able to see that that's what we do. Yeah. And that that is going to be, again, a win-win-win because just like on language and what you did on the film yesterday, um, we need more institutions mm -hmm. going on language to translate as opposed to kids translating yeah. our banking, our finance, our legal, our medical uh, terms so that we don't have to rely on our children being burdened, 11 million children being burdened with that. But that's a huge business for you. That's mm -hmm. an incredible opportunity. If you know that, you know, like Latinos identify language. And if you're a Latina of 50 years old, the likelihood is you don't speak Spanish. 30% mm -hmm. of Latinos do not speak Spanish because their parents were like, mijo, no, assimilate, don't mm -hmm. speak the language, pretend you're not. And the 50-year-old now is taking Spanish lessons. Yeah. So there's an incredible trend to language. There's an incredible trend to Latinidad. And institutions like yours are doing the smart thing, but doing it the good way. Mm -hmm. You know, like the mm -hmm. way in which, you know, it's going to see us, which is by intersectionality, lifting each other's up and being able to do the, the marketing that matters to us, the marketing that works with us, which is the trust marketing. Claudia, I saw... I saw some kind of video you made where you talked about living by the 80-20 rule, which is 80% planned, 20% unplanned. Uh, this ratio today, it, uh, I, I had so many more questions planned, but we didn't need them. Like this this conversation and, and the data drops and the stories um, was exactly what we need to illuminate your work, the fact that we're all human, um, I'm going to throw a Yiddish word at you since I'm sure you speak Yiddish as well. You're you're a mocker. You know that word? Yeah. Yeah. You know that word, right, Greg? I don't. It's, it's so. also German. It means you're a maker. You're, you're a baller. You get stuff done. Um, yeah. You're a yeah. mocker. If you want to sound really Yiddish, give the <laughs> You're a mocker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I don't have all your languages, but I will say gracias and oh, and grazie and merci. And what else? Spasiba. You got any others? I think. Um, oh, uh, I used to know how to say it in Polish too. Do you know that one? No. Junkoya, Junkoya, I think. Mm. Donkashin, yeah, all of them. <laughs> and I'll throw in Shalom because that's all purpose. <laughs> yeah, well, it's exactly like Shalom. Doesn't matter. Like, yeah, exactly. Ciao. Um, <laughs> um, thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing these stories. Thank you for your good work. And thank you. I've never seen 
anyone so prepared like you. You're like literally <laughs> a combination between detective, researcher, journalist. <laughs> Like I said the same shrink. thing. Greg knows I'm you also, know the same yeah, thing. I'm also an approval She's junkie. So I will take your approbation, <laughs> absorb it, sweat it out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here, Claudia. Oh, thank you Pleasure. so very much for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Real Good. If you like what you heard, subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We'll see you soon. This podcast was paid for and produced by US Bank. The editorial staff of CNBC had no role in its creation.